Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Andrea Bellamy, the author of Small Space Vegetable Gardens, Growing Great Edibles in Containers, Raised Beds, and Small Plots. And you also have a blog at, at Heavy Petal, don't you? And that's, that's heavypetal.somethingelse. Right. It's not .com, is it? <laughs> .ca, because I'm in Canada. Right. Okay. You know, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody in Vancouver. Have you lived in Vancouver all your life? Most of the time, yes, I have. I, I was born and raised here. I, I went away for university and uh, lived uh, in Athens for a very brief period. Uh, but, yeah, mostly born and raised in Vancouver. That's pretty cool. Your climate is very much different than ours. Um, you mm-hmm. can grow things in, well, I guess you're not very much colder than we are. We get down to 10 Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in, in centigrade. <laughs> in Celsius. <laughs> but we're a very similar climate to, say, Seattle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the maritime, we get the, the maritime warmth coming off the ocean. So it's, it, it's, if you've got a garden in Canada, it's pretty much the place to be. Well, I know that you have a wonderful garden there um, that I have yet to see. I've been across <laughs> the bay from you several times, but I've never actually been in Vancouver. Maybe we'll do that sometime. So how did you get into gardening? Since I didn't have much choice, climate. really. <laughs> My uh, well, I grew up in um, kind of a, the rural outskirts of Vancouver, and um, just having that exposure to you know a big half-acre property with lots of trees, and kind of had one of those childhoods where I just ran wild in the forest most of the time, and so I have that real appreciation for the outdoors. And then my parents um, didn't really get into gardening until I was a teen, but my mom got really, really into gardening at that time. And she used to drag me around her her garden, which she just planted full of perennials, and she would have me name the plants in Latin and try to memorize the Latin names. And and despite that, I actually became a gardener. You'd think that would totally turn off a teen, but I was into it. Well, it is kind of interesting, and you can always impress people by rattling off, you know, <laughs> polysyllabic Latin names for things. True. Um, and then, and then once you are into it, you have time, hard time speaking normally to people, don't you? Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> you, you, the Latin comes easier than than that. And you went to school for garden design, or did you do that later? I did that later. Uh, so after I, I moved out of my parents' house, I moved to Victoria on Vancouver Island. went to UVic for, I did an English degree, actually. And then uh, I, uh, much later, did a garden design certificate at UBC in Vancouver. But my focus uh, has always been more on the writing side than the, than the um, you know, I've never worked in gardening as a, as a professional landscaper or designer or anything like that. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that fascinated me about your book, Small Space Vegetable Garden, is that you talk about about the design elements right at the beginning before you mm-hmm. dive into um, before you dive into the actual how to of it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, you I know, definitely have that perspective on gardens and the, and wanting them to look good, and I don't think that. You know, I think there's a perception that veggie gardens can be quite unattractive or just very basic or utilitarian, and I think that they can be really beautiful, and that's why I do like to focus on the design and getting that design uh, kind of set up front. Now, you mentioned that some people think vegetable gardens are, are kind of ugly, and they can be if they're not tended mm-hmm. or if you just, you know, if you're growing a utilitarian garden. But 
people don't, I don't think, even realize how beautiful some vegetables are. Eggplant, for example. You yes. get an eggplant and the leaves are perfect unless you get flea beetles. Do you have flea beetles in your neck of the woods? We do. Yes, we do. <laughs> and they, they sort of turn everything to lace in a big hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, but the eggplant is beautiful even if the leaves are, you know, full of shot holes and things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what they would have you have a tropical look. Yes, they do. With the kind of big leaves and mm-hmm. then you, I especially like the Asian eggplants with the long, um, my, one of my favorites is farmer's long. It's got a, it's very long. It's six inches, maybe eight inches long and it's purple. So oh. it just looks like Christmas ornaments hanging down there. <laughs> I'll put that on my planting list. Now, where have you gardened? You said you grew up on a half an acre. How did you mm-hmm. get into small space gardening? Well, um, Vancouver, as you might know, has a, a very uh, hot real estate market, and so really, when you're when you're first moving out of your parents' place, you, you you're in an apartment. So even though I was in an apartment with a tiny balcony, I knew I had to garden, and I had I actually had a wonderful balcony in my first apartment, and uh, it was south facing and rather large, and so. I just, you know, I, I was just, I, I, there was no question about it. I was going to garden on it. So I put some containers, and and that was a real learning experience for me because it was the first time I had grown in containers and, you know, just thought, okay, well, the same principles apply as do uh, in, in-ground gardening, and I quickly learned that was, that was not the case. So there was a lot of trial and error, a lot of error in the beginning. Now, well, I think that's typical for most gardens. gardeners. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I always stress is for people just to relax. You're going to make mistakes. It's not the end of the world. You know, you just Absolutely. try again. And you learn from what you did. What did you learn about container gardening that was so different from gardening in the ground? Well, I, I did know that you couldn't use just your plain old garden soil, like that you had to buy your the special potting mix that allows for roots or roots of development and air circulation. So I, did, I, I didn't make that mistake, although I know it's a pretty common one. But what I didn't uh, really understand was that container-grown plants are just so dependent on us for everything because they're, they're kind of at our mercy. So that's just that they needed so much more in the way of regular watering and feeding because they can't draw from those nutrients that in-ground plants can. So I ran into sure. some plants that were that were desperately struggling until I finally figured out, oh, I guess I better feed this. <laughs> but that took me longer than it should have. <laughs> yeah, you, it, if you buy a plant at the nursery, it's all nice and lush and green. Mm-hmm. And if you don't feed it, you know, you notice after a month or so that the poor little thing has gone pale on you. Yeah, um, and it's just struggling. It's not growing at all. Now, where you, I noticed in your in your little bio you've grown on rooftops, too. How did yes, that come about? That was just another apartment that I had, and it was um, we lived in a um, three-story apartment building, pr- pretty typical for Vancouver, and, and we were on the um, the <laughs> penthouse, and I put penthouse in quotes because it was just <laughs> this one little box stuck, stuck on the top of this uh, apartment building, but we had the rest of the roof, and uh, so that was... But that was great. It was just because you get such great sun exposure, but then you also get the wind, uh, and it's the heat can be quite unrelenting up on on a rooftop as well. So it's got its own challenges, but also I mean you get the the view and you get the sun exposure, and so there's there's a definite balance between pros and cons on gardening on rooftops. Yeah, it's funny. I don't think of Vancouver as ever being hot. 
but I guess you do have yeah. your days in summer when you get up there. We're mi- we're very mild, like we have mild summers, and uh, I don't. I'm not going to know the Fahrenheit conversion, but I mean, when on a re- like for us, 30 Celsius would be considered really hot. But up on a rooftop, and you've got the the, the tar roof around you, something about that just kind of seems to amplify all the heat. I can imagine. What did you do about the wind? We erected some trellises and just to kind of create a windbreak. And then I grew, I grew vines, grew runner beans. I think grew some honeysuckle. You know, just anything to to beautify that and also create a nice little shelter for the pots and for us as well. Because we had a little you know bistro table out there. But otherwise, you know, we were finding that. Anything that I grew in in smaller pots was they were getting knocked over. So I learned some secrets like clustering the pots together and not to grow anything too tall in too small of a pot because that would just fly right over in the in the breeze. Yeah, a tomato plant in a fourteen inch pot is bound to go over. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess if you're up on a rooftop, you can't do what a lot of gardeners do that garden in containers in windy spots. They they make a little hook out of rebar, or they buy a little hook out of rebar, and they pound it into the ground. But I guess that mm-hmm. wouldn't be an option for you up there. <laughs> no. And what did you grow? I appreciated that. Yeah. What did you grow in your rooftop garden besides um, the runner beans and honeysuckle? See, that that was a long time ago. Let me think about that. Um, well, definitely tomatoes. I grew some lettuces. That was actually before I was really into edibles. So, you know, because growing up, I didn't do a lot of edible gardening. Uh, so I, on that rooftop, I was still growing um, a lot. My focus was more on ornamentals and, and uh, bedding plants and whatnot. But I was just starting to dabble into, like, the herbs, and, and that's always a, a great way to get into edible gardening. Uh, I always recommend that uh, beginners start with with herbs, just because they are they're, they're the gateway drug to edible gardening. I say because they are so easy and uh, you know attract beneficial insects and repel pests and uh, all those good things. And they're useful. I mean, if you're going to be mm-hmm. cooking, you might as well cook with fresh herbs instead of the nasty old yeah. dry stuff if you can. Yeah. And they're very forgiving. Most of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you you know if you go away for a weekend and you don't get them watered before you go. The time is going to forgive you. Yes. And the rosemary. I'm not too sure about the basil, but the time on the rosemary certainly. Yeah. So where else have you gardened? You mentioned your balcony and the rooftop. Where else? Yeah. Well, um, the last place we were living in was a, was a three-story row house, kind of townhouse. And so it had a third-floor balcony, and then there was also a patio on the main floor, which my husband deemed a food-free zone in order to try to try to stop the inevitable march of, of containers of vegetables uh, <laughs> in crowding his barbecue. It didn't really work, though, because I, I ended up making a little mini woodland garden uh, planter bed and planted some uh, cranberry or not cranberries, uh, huckleberries, which is a, a native... Uh, berry bush in our area uh, so I kind of snuck some in anyway but then you know once you've got that bug and you just uh, I mean for me I was just wanting to, to expand and I always seem to want to grow things that I didn't I couldn't grow in containers or, would, or that would be really difficult to grow in containers like wheat for example so I uh, I think the first expansion I, I did was we I convinced the Strata Council and our townhouse complex to 
let us build uh, some raised beds in this underutilized corner of our, our shared courtyard. And so we ended up building three raised beds there, uh, and then it kind of became a little mini community garden for the, the complex. And so I got half of one of those beds. It was only nine square feet, but when you, are, you know, when when your whole balcony is nine square feet, I thought that was pretty amazing. And uh, so that became my little shady um, lettuce garden, and I produced some amazing salads from that little nine square feet of maybe three hours of sun a day. So. That was a good one. Um, let's see. I also had a plot in the community garden that's just across the street. Um, that was, uh, you know, I, I love the community garden. Just for, not for, just for the space. I mean, space was was a great bonus to to get that big uh, plot, but also just for the community and the. Uh, the knowledge gained from other gardeners from various backgrounds and ethnicities and experience levels and, and just to connect with other gardeners in that way was really special. Yeah, that shared knowledge and the shared mm-hmm. bond that you get with other gardeners is always special. Um, and, and sharing vegetables and here, have you tried this variety? And, you know, handing them a, a snap pea that you, of a type that you haven't grown before, that's always a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a little break right here, but when we come back, I'd like to, you mentioned something about growing wheat. I'd like to hear that. (laughs) We'll be right back after this. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today I'm talking with Andrea Bellamy, who's the author of Small Space Vegetable Gardens. And right before the break, you mentioned something about wheat. What is, tell me about that. <laughs> well, being a city girl from the West Coast, I, I've never been to the prairies, and I had this very romantic notion of wanting to walk through a wheat field. And this must have been inspired by Hollywood because I've never experienced it in person, but I, I really just wanted to to walk through a field of wheat. And I lived in a townhouse with a balcony, so wheat wasn't really an option. And so I kind of had that idea in the back of my mind when I was I went to visit uh, the Terranova Schoolyard Society Garden, which is in a, a suburb of Vancouver. And I was just out there because I heard it was a, a nice public garden to visit. And they had this section in the front that was their schoolyard garden and so they had school kids come into the garden and they do urban gardening projects with them and one section of that was called the the daily bread garden and they were growing wheat and they were growing different types of grains and so I was talking to the one of the gardeners there and she explained that the school comes in, they plant, they do they do whole school units around it, so they'll, they'll learn, they, they incorporate math and, and biology and all this stuff. And so they plant the wheat, they grow it, they tend it, they harvest it, and then they make bread out of it. And it was just a small plot, and I thought, wow, that's, that's so cool. I want to do that. And so, so then I had that idea in the back of my head, and I was chatting with um, uh, somebody who was in our community garden one day and just describing how... I wanted to take advantage of this this a, a vacant lot that was next door to our community garden. I thought this. I was saying, how great is this big this lot? It's south facing. The soil looks fertile. You know, city doesn't use it was a city owned lot, and the city only comes in once or twice a summer with their mower to keep it neat. Wouldn't it be great if we could use that? And they said, well, why don't we? <laughs> we'll see what happens. So we. Rented a rototiller and we we plowed up that land and um, the we planted wheat. We planted hard red spring wheat and became part of a citywide project um, known as the Lawns to Loaves project. And this was conceived by uh, a fellow who comes to the Vancouver farm, Farmers Market, who's known as the Flower Peddler, and uh, he mills grain on a recumbent bicycle that he's fitted with a, a flour mill. It's, it's it's pretty funky. Oh, cool! <laughs> and uh, so this all, all these people came together in the all the various coincidences, and and so he he coordinated this growing of wheat across the city in various pockets. So his idea was that you could create an urban farm, and it didn't have to all be together. It could be spread out in these little pockets. So we had this one pocket, but it was quite substantial. It was, I think, about 2,000 square feet of, of wheat. I mean, small for a wheat field, obviously, but uh, we it grew like mad. I, I, I don't think I watered it once, and it, it, it just loved the location, and 
Um, and then come September, the members of the community garden helped to harvest. That was the hard part, the harvest and the threshing by hand. And and then we ended up getting these, this uh, recumbent bike mill and uh, mill, uh, milling up into this weed into flour. And then from there, we had a big community pizza party, making these pizzas and giving them out to the community. And it was such an amazing project um, and so much fun. And just to see what happens when people come together. And, and then I got to fulfill my dream as well of, of walking through that wheat field and, you know, r- brushing my fingertips along the, the tops of the wheat heads. So win-win. I, that's a wonderful idea. And I, I love the idea of lawns to loaves. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much wasted space in the world, you know, that could be producing food for people. And I like the idea of your community garden, too, because it gets so many people these days, I think, are isolated one from another. They don't really talk to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a common interest like gardening, it, it helps to bring them together. And I, the, the pizza, I, I mean, who doesn't like pizza? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great idea. Even if you're vegetarian, you can eat a, eat a pizza. Mm-hmm. Um so how much wheat do you get off of a, well, you mentioned it was 2,700 2, square feet? 2,000 yeah, square feet. 2,000, that's a very rough estimate. We, we uh, I believe it was about 50 pounds of the kernels uh, and, uh, or the, the, what do they call those, the wheat seeds. Wheat berries, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, and so, um, but I'm not sure what the total was after it was ground. Yeah, how did you get rid of the hulls? Did you oh my do? Did you beat <laughs> the grain on the ground in the traditional way and, yeah, and throw it did. up in the air so the chaff blew away? <laughs> you got it. Uh, yeah, that was very time consuming. We had a small a kitty's wading pool that we beat the the uh, wheat into, and then somebody brought a, a fan, uh, like a, a house fan, to kind of. We could throw the weed in the air and let the the shaft blow, blow off. Then, then about halfway through, somebody brought in a old um, wool carding machine that her grandmother had owned. It was like a hand crank manual machine, and I could use the term machine loosely, but, uh, to card wool. And so you would just drop the, the weed heads into this carder, and it would it would help to break down the the weed heads and and, and help to separate the wheat from the shaft. That's fun. That's uh, mm-hmm. I, you know when you when you think of you know just harvesting and um, getting your wheat to the table, and you think of our ancestors that had to do all of that every you know every season as a matter of you know of living. Yeah, yeah. and you get you a whole new appreciation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I, that's it. And did the kids participate in this too, or was it all adults? Yeah, it was. Definitely my, my daughter was involved, um, and she was probably only two and a half or three at the time. And, you know, going to the community garden and to check on the wheat field was, was, was part of just one of our, our daily or weekly tasks. And so, yeah, she's been along for the ride for, for all of it. Tell me about your daughter. Well, she's humongous. I can't believe how big she is now. She's almost seven, uh, which, you know, it's, uh, I look at her and sometimes my heart hurts because my baby's growing up. But, um, she's, you know, when I was pregnant, I, I thought, 
had this kind of romantic idea that about gardening with a with a child or with a baby, and I kind of had this vision of her sleeping peacefully in a little bassinet as I gardened, and, <laughs> and uh, that didn't quite work out. You know, it turned out that my the my favorite gardening tool. When I was uh, when she was very small, was a, was a baby monitor, so I could go out and and uh, <laughs> and do some work on the balcony while she was napping, and then and then of course you move into the toddler years, and that then it just became more about damage control than anything, and uh, and just yeah yeah she was at all about flinging dirt, putting handfuls of dirt, although she had only ever tried that once. I think she quickly learned that uh, dirt isn't all that tasty. So so from there, um, we went, you know, it's amazing to see now how she's kind of grown and, and she's actually helpful now. We've moved out of the damage control phase and we're into, uh, she's really into the fairy garden thing. So she's got her little fairy garden that her grandma helps her set up uh, with the the tire swing uh, in a little Japanese maple, and she's got her fairies and little stepping stone paths, and she has a lot of fun with that, and and creating little homes out of sticks and and all that. And then she's actually helpful for me in the garden too. She helps with the leaf raking, and and she's really into composting um, and and turning the compost. Actually, that was the, one of the first ways I. I got her involved in gardening tasks when she was really little because she loved opening up the little, the little lid at the side of the compost bin and seeing what was in there and checking out all the worms and the sow bugs and, and just kind of getting involved in that. She wasn't squeamish at all, and she still isn't. So I credit I credit those early days of composting for that. Well, sure, and I think most kids really aren't all that squeamish about stuff as long as they see it, as long as they don't see their friends going, ooh, what's horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely a learned behavior, isn't it? I, yeah. I think so. Because yeah. I, I know my, my city cousin was, um, when we'd go fishing, sometimes I'd turn over a log or two looking for worms, and she would just absolutely mm-hmm. freak out. And mm-hmm. for me, I thought it was really cool just to go find them all and see what else was underneath there. So now, yeah. is your daughter into... Um, Edibles too, or is she just into fairy gardening? No, she's she's into all of it. Really, she loves to be outdoors, and um, she's into edibles because I'm into edibles. So we always work on some projects together, uh, and I like to try something new with her every year. Often, she'll get her own plot. Um, you know, as when she was little, and I discovered that I could kind of con- control uh, the damage that she would inflict on, on my areas of garden uh, by giving her her own container to work on it with. I've done the same thing now even as she gets older. So uh, her and her the two next-door neighbor girls uh, who are, you know, thick as thieves, they, they have their own little plot in our backyard that they uh, – that, that's all theirs. And, you know, usually it's – the the lettuce comes up in handfuls. You can see they're not great at doing rows, but they come up in, in big clusters, and there's always tons of, of flowers, and uh, they have a really good time with it. But, you know, it's, it's theirs, and, and, you know, Mom keeps her hands off, and I try not to interfere too much, and, um, yeah, they, they have a really good time with that. That's wonderful. I, I'm a big fan of getting kids into the garden. I guess partly mm-hmm. because I was in the garden early. Um, my mm-hmm. grandmother and my mother let me help, even though I'm sure wasn't very much help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was two years old, and by the time I was three or four, I had my own little garden. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, I'm sure my mother did it just to keep me out of the rest of her stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when you give a kid ownership, there's, there's something, you know, that they get all the credit for themselves, too. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's terrific. Um, we had a school gardening program. I don't know if you have those in Vancouver. I assume you do. Well, you, you mm-hmm. have the, the one with the with the wheat um, in in the park. But do you have normal regular school um, in school garden classes? It seems to be. I, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think some areas do. It's not a standard you know, curriculum for across the the, the district. Um, I, I have gone into schools um, at their request of individual teachers to do some plantings, and there's a there's a program called um, Agriculture in the Classroom or something like that. It's it's run through the BC Agriculture Foundation, and they do a program called Spuds and Tubs. Which I think is a wonderful name, and they they just do potatoes. So they grow, they go in, and they provide the, a large container, and they the the kids do the planting just before spring break, and they've chosen um, warba, which is a, a quick maturing variety, and they they so that it's ready to harvest before school goes out for the summer, and uh, so they they do the whole you know potato uh, life cycle and harvest and all that. So there's definitely stuff happening in schools. Um, but it seems to be more up to individual teachers than, than to, like, the district. I love the idea of growing potatoes in a container. It's so mm-hmm. much easy, it's so easy to harvest and for the kids to be able to see that magic when the potatoes yeah. come out. That, yeah. I'm sure that lights up more than mm-hmm. a few eyes. Mm-hmm. One, one of the cool projects I did with uh, Lila uh, this year was to do a bean teepee. Um, growing runner beans up at Little Teepee, and that became kind of a little hideaway for her. So there's so, there's so many great things you can do with kids in the garden. I, yeah, and getting them involved, that's, that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing. We have to take a little break right now, but I want to remind you, you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be back talking gardening right after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. 
In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and we're talking today to Andrea Bellamy, who's the author of Small Space Vegetable Gardens, Growing Great Edibles in Containers, Raised Beds, and Small Plots, and we're right before the break, we were talking about some things that you do with your daughter in the garden, and you mentioned the teepee. Um, now, are your wonder beads edible, or are they just decorative? I, I grew uh, purple peacock pole beans and a scarlet runner beans, and mostly chosen for uh, the, the flowers and for the color. And I, that's one of the things that I find that kids can get really into is when they see uh, – Different vegetables that they don't see in the supermarket. So a purple bean, for example. Um, even runner beans aren't something that we commonly see in our supermarkets here. So, you know, I, I try to grow those unusual varieties like round carrots or even purple carrots, different colors and shapes than they would normally see, and that's something that can they get really interested in. Kids are definitely interested in, in the weird. Um, mm-hmm. I had, when I grew purple potatoes and showed them to the neighbors, they just thought that was the coolest thing in the world because they'd never <laughs> seen a purple potato before. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you do with your with your daughter in the garden? Well, yeah, as I mentioned last year, we did a um, a teepee, which I left open on one side, so it was like a three quarter circle teepee, and uh, I used bamboo stakes that were probably eight feet tall, and then left uh, that opening so that the, the kids could climb in and actually use that as a little hideout. And so as the vines covered the, the poles, it became more and more of this little little hideaway for them. So that was pretty cool. Um, what else do we do? Everything, you know, just incorporating even the smallest things like starting seeds in eggshells. We did that last Easter and came up with a really cool display for our Easter table. Uh, we did um, we in, left them in the the egg carton, but then having the half egg shells planted with seeds, and so then we alternated like the little seeds growing in the egg shells with with uh, colored Easter eggs, and that made a really nice centerpiece. Oh, how fun! That's great. Mm-hmm. Now you do something else. I was looking at your website, and you can tell people what. Um, what's your website is? It's heavypedal.ca. Okay, and I was looking on your website, and you got a little clip in there from CBC about doing something unusual in the garden. Tell us about mm-hmm. your seed bombing and how you got started <laughs> doing that. Yeah, seed bombing. Um, got interested in seed bombing several years ago. Uh, there was a. Um, a Vancouver guerrilla gardening meetup group that I joined, and uh, one of the fellows there was interested in seed bombing, and I got really into it. Uh, so, for those that don't know, seed bombing or seed seed bombs are a portable, pocket-sized seed delivery device, and they are used often by guerrilla gardeners as a 
as a way to uh, green a space without needing to carry shovels or seeds. They're kind of this seed, soil, compost mix all rolled into one, and you can carry them with you. And, and they're great for flinging over fences or um, dropping on, on a high-traffic area where otherwise wouldn't be safe to garden, such as like a, a, a boulevard or a median, or just even places where um, in an urban environment, say, where uh, the soil might be uh, full of broken glass or something like that. Now, tell people what a gorilla gardener is. I don't know that a lot of people have heard mm-hmm. the term. Sure. Well, gorilla, I define it as gardening on land that isn't your own without permission. And uh, so it's a, there's a little bit of a, a you know, the, the, the term gorilla isn't, we're not referring to the apes, we're talking about to gorilla warfare. So there's a little bit of subterfuge and counterculture involved there. Uh, although, you know, me, the, I'm the urban mom here, so I'm not really a person skulking around at night in, their, in a black hoodie or anything like that. But it is something that... Um, you know, it's, it started out in the 70s in New York. Um, is there kind of there's a group uh, called the Green Gorillas, and they're kind of res- deemed responsible for the gorilla gardening movement. And it started um, as a as a woman who lived um, in the Bowery District, and I've forgotten her name, but um, she was watching this. She lived next to this vacant lot that was always strewn with garbage and she got tired of seeing it and then one day she witnessed a a child um there's kids playing in the lot and a kid was going to climb into a abandoned fridge and close this door on himself and so she's like that's it this has got to change and so she got a group of people together and um cleaned out the lot and and turned it into a community garden um and that's the the oldest uh, community garden in New York City now I think it's at seventy third and Bowery, but uh, so that that kind of they that group the Green Gorillas uh, um, also used that seed bomb idea um, and and uh, used it as a way of reclaiming land for the public good really um, so you know you're doing maybe gorilla action but it's it's in the name of greening uh, greening what is otherwise a neglected or abandoned lot or just trying to beautify your neighborhood. And one of the things that's interesting about doing something like that, when you clean up a vacant lot it doesn't, and, and you plant something, it doesn't get mm-hmm. strewn with garbage any, again. When if mm-hmm. you just clean it up, you know, a month later it's all full of trash again. But if you plant right. something there and people see that, it, that it's becoming beautiful, it cuts way down on, on vandalism and the trash throwing Absolutely. and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful idea. Tell people how to make a seed bomb. Sure. So um, it, a seed bomb is a mixture of clay, compost, seeds, and water. And the clay that I use is like a uh, potter's clay. It's a powdered form of red clay, and that kind of binds the, the uh, ball together. Compost or, or potting soil, whatever you have on hand, is just that growing medium for the seeds and then the seeds themselves. And I found that um, I, I like to do... Um, pollinator-attracting plants, so um, things that will support our bees or our butterflies. I've done edibles as well, but, um, you know, generally I'm just trying to beautify something rather than actually harvest, so uh, I I mostly do um, those uh, beneficial insect-attracting 
seeds. And um, so you mix the dry ingredients together, like making, like doing baking. So you mix your dry ingredients together, and then you just add water until the the mixture clumps together, and you can roll them into, you know, one inch diameter uh, balls. And then you can either throw them or use them right away, or you can dry them and, and use them for up to a year. And that's one of the things that I did when my daughter Lila was, was very small and I was on maternity leave, and she would only ever seem to nap in her stroller. So I did a lot of walking, and uh, just to, to keep things interesting, I would bring along a bag of these seed bombs with me uh, on our walks, and I would you know throw them or drop them as, as in the appropriate places as we walked, and uh, it's it's cool because even now I can see some of the poppies, for example, come back on on that route that I walked over and over and over with my with my sleeping baby. That's wonderful. I wouldn't have thought that they would reseed that well mm-hmm. in an urban environment. But um, how much rainfall do you get in Vancouver? Are you wet like Seattle? We are dry yes. in the su- dry in the summer mm-hmm. and then the wet rest of the time. Wet, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> We've had a wonderful dry winter and so far, but um, yeah, today the rain has come and uh, so we'll p- probably have that for another few weeks. What else do you put in your seed bottles besides the poppies? Do you use are you using wildflower mixes or um, yeah. do you just buy seed packets or like avinias and poppies or something or? What do you do? Yeah, I, I generally, um, I mean, whatever I have, really. That I, I don't use large seeds. I found I tried to do um, nasturtiums once, and because the seeds were so large, they actually split the balls as they dried. So I, I look for smaller seeds. Um, I often will buy um, a wild, like a West Coast wildflower mix um, from from our my local site seed company, West Coast Seeds. Um, but just, uh, I mean, sunflowers are always a good one. Um, I've done uh, alyssum. I've done dill is nice. Um, coriander from a, from an herb perspective. But then otherwise, just like the zinnias and the um, and, and yeah, anything that's that's got that nectar that will attract those insects. Yeah. And people, I, I guess most of my listeners anyway, know that we are really shy of pollinators. So we've been killing them off mm-hmm. and, and too many insecticides and things like that. We won't go into some of the politics with it, but we really do, do need to plant for pollinator. I, you know what? Mm-hmm. I was just thinking while you were, when you mentioned dill that that would be a great thing to mix in with some zinnias so you've got nectar plants and food plants for, for butterflies. Mm-hmm. Besides being able to nibble a little bit of of the dill on your way. Mm -hmm. Have you done any other herbs, Uh, like basil or anything like that? I wonder how that would work in there. Um, I probably have. Like, there's been times when I'm trying to make up the seed mix and just kind of going, okay, what do I have on on hand? And, And I don't always see the returns because, you know, I won't return to a place where I've thrown them or... I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, it takes, you know, the, the, it's not an ideal way to seed. I think if you if you could, if you actually uh, want to plant those seeds, you'd probably see better returns. All, all the seed bomb does is kind of protect the seeds from being blown away. It's, it's a step above kind of scattering them on the ground. So they, you know, protects them from insects and whatnot. Um, 
I imagine that the hay holds, helps hold some moisture, too, while they're germinating. Yeah. But, I, but you made the point about not wanting to stick your hands in vacant lots where they might be broken glass. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a wonderful idea. I'd never even think, thought about that. I haven't mm-hmm. lived in a city for a long, long time. And uh, even then, it was just kind of a, a big town. But I, that's a wonderful idea for people to do. And I could see them, as, as you said, growing edibles, particularly edible herbs. And then, you know, somebody in the neighborhood is bound to recognize what it is and use them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, yeah. Do you have any favorite crops to go? We've got about a minute and a half in this seg- segment, but I'd like to get started on some of your favorite vegetables and things like that. Yeah. Um, well, what don't I like to grow? Um, I love I, I, I love to grow all types of greens. And that could be just from my days as a, a container-only gardener because there's such a good crop to grow in containers. But I just feel like as a gardener, there's no excuse for a boring salad. There's so many amazing varieties of lettuces. And then on top of lettuces, like mizuna is one of my favorites. It's a very mild uh, mustard green. I don't like the spicier mustards raw in a salad, but I really love mizuna. And it grows so well here uh, on, the, on the wet coast. Um, I also love arugula. Uh, I love it in a salad or on on top of a pizza or just stirred into into pasta. Um, but yeah, lettuces and greens definitely one of my my top favorites. Um, there are so many beautiful before. beautiful lettuces too. The, oh, some of the are. red ones and the oak leaves and and I I love uh, um, Renee's seed mixes. She's got lots of lettuce. Uh, uh, mixes out there and greens mixes. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a little break right now, but I want to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and you can always find our find us on Facebook and post a question there. We'll be right back after this. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Andrea Bellamy, who's the author of Small Space Vegetable Gardens. And, Andrea, right before the break, you were talking about growing greens because they're so easy to do in a container. And we mentioned Renee's lettuce mix. And you, what else um, of hers have you grown, or what other varieties of lettuce? One of my favorite uh, lettuces, hands down, is the Renee's uh, Garden Babies Butter Lettuce. And it's been uh, bred for containers, and I, I always find that no matter what stress that plant is under, it always turns out beautiful. Like as an organic gardener, often you have to settle for produce that's, you know, not always the most attractive because you bugs eat it or whatever. Uh, there's something about that lettuce that it always looks like it came fresh off a shelf at Whole Foods or something. Yeah, it is. It's for those of you that haven't grown it. It is just absolutely beautiful. Um, I grew it last year with some neon chard, and mm. the combination was great because the garden babies are small, and then you get the the big rise of the chard in back of it with all those wonderful different colors. What other kinds of greens do you grow? You mentioned mizuna, and how about kale? You didn't mention kale. Well, uh, yeah, isn't kale hot right now? <laughs> um, I do love kale. Um, it's taken me a while to appreciate it, though. It used to be, <laughs> it used to be um, one of my defense plants, actually, at the community garden. So uh, the first year of my community garden, I'm just going to diverge here for a second, um, 
I planted all kinds of wonderful things, and I quickly learned that you can't plant anything that looks like food. My tomatoes would be almost ready to harvest, and it would come back the next day, and somebody would have taken it, and it it was so frustrating. And the same would go for my zucchini or anything that was easy to pick. So I planted kale, (laughs) and nobody took my kale. But that was several (laughs) years ago. Yeah, a lot of, you know, it would get stolen now. So, um, but anyway, yeah, it did take me a while to embrace the kale, and now I'm on, on the bandwagon with everybody else. But I love the lacinato kale, the, the, that Tuscan or dinosaur kale with the blue-green crumpled leaves. It's just it's a beautiful plant. And I also love um, uh, the rainbow lacinato, which I believe is a cross between the lacinato and uh, red boar or one of the curly red uh, varieties, and it's it's got it is rainbowy. I don't, I don't think I've seen that, that word. I'll, <laughs> I'll have to I will have to look it up. I don't think I've seen mm-hmm. that one, but it sounds like fun. I was mm-hmm. one of these strange people that grew kale years and years ago too, before <laughs> anybody um, before right. it became popular. And all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, I started seeing kale this and kale that. And there's even a cookbook dedicated to oh, kale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I never could have imagined that because kale was one of those things that if you got it, it was kind of like the parsley that they put on your plate. You know, people would set yeah. it aside. They, yeah. they wouldn't, they wouldn't eat it. And now it's just all over. Do you have a favorite way of preparing it? Um, I just I like sautéed kale, um, just straight up in a in a some olive oil with some garlic. I also like it. Um, chopped and stirred into pastas. Um, My husband likes to make kale chips as well. I know that's a popular way to eat it. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, more and more I've actually been eating it raw um, in a salad, and I find the trick with it is to um, to julienne it and then to massage it a little bit and then and actually like get your hands in that bowl of, of kale and kind of uh, knead it almost and uh, sometimes with like a, just a tiny little bit of salt and that really helps to break down the fibrous starchy bits. Yeah, do you take the take the stems off? I do. Yeah. Yeah, kale stems are something that I could never embrace. Um, <laughs> no. you know, some people, some people like them braised, but I, I just assume give them to the chickens. The mm-hmm. chickens like it; they're fine. What other things do you like to grow? Well, I love to grow. Um, oh gosh, I love peas, sugar snap peas, um, beans. I, I, I really, I think the key for me is to find a mix of old favorites that I, I that I know are going to show up for me that are going to be reliable that are going to be tasty things that I've grown over and over again and then I always want to try something new and and maybe I sometimes lean too far towards trying too many new things and not enough tried and trues but I always want to try something that I've never grown before something that's a little bit interesting or especially with tomatoes there's just so many tomato varieties and I, I want to try them all and uh, it seems like there's never enough space or time to, to try all of those wonderful heirloom varieties that are out there. Yeah, I think I've got seeds for 32 varieties of tomato mm-hmm. planted, and that's all that I had room for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it breaks my heart because there are thousands of them now. Mm-hmm. Um, Craig LaHoulier has been my guest and will be a, a guest again talking about different tomato varieties, so you'll have to have to check in on, on what he's got. He's, one of the things that he has done, he's um, headed up a project called the Dwarf Tomato Project, 
and they're breeding very small plants. And one of the neat things about these small tomatoes from the Dwarf Tomato Project is that most of them have stems that are like tree trunks. So wow. even so, they're they're short in stature. They produce normal sized fruit, but you can grow them easily in a container. And you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, the problem of containers blowing over. It's much less likely to happen. I'm not going to say it doesn't ever happen, but you can get a lot of tomatoes into a small space. Yeah, what right. what do you, what do people think need to know about growing in containers? What's the probably you mentioned? Don't use don't use real dirt. Use potting soil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the main thing that that you need to know about growing in containers is that is that they require a lot of watering. So if you if you have a you know a choice between growing in ground or containers, and that's just something to consider, is that they just they dry out a lot more quickly than does an in ground garden. So you have to be prepared either to invest more time watering or to invest in in a system like a like a drip irrigation system or self watering containers, for example. I'm a big fan of, of drip irrigation because Me too. Um, you can get the little kits easily. Mm-hmm. You know, most all the hardware stores carry them. They're inexpensive, and you can get an inexpensive timer so that you can set it on yes. so you don't have to remember. Because I don't know Absolutely. about you. I don't know about you, but I'm one of these people. I go, will go turn a hose on, and then... Ten hours later, I'll say, you know, in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and say, ah, I forgot to turn the water off. Yeah. <laughs> it's not fun when you're driving down the road at 65 miles an hour and, it, and realize that you've left the water running. Uh-huh. It's just not a, not a big lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, so what well, else do they need to know? Oh, sure. I was just going to say one last thing about the drip irrigation. Um, we did that on our, our balcony, and the great thing about it is that you can actually – go away for a weekend in the summer or even a week and not have to call somebody in to, to do your watering. So there's that with the timer. So it's, it's a great investment. Um, and then, sorry, you asked me what else I'd like to, what else I like to grow? Yeah, what else do you like to grow and what else do you have any other container tips? We have soil and the watering. Right. You mentioned fertilizer um, before. What kind of fertilizer do you like to use in your containers? Well, generally, when I'm when I'm planting up a new container, I'll mix in an organic granular, all-purpose fertilizer when at planting time, and then throughout the season, I also do some liquid fertilizing, and I, I tend to do um, I alternate between liquid kelp and uh, and fish emulsion. Ooh, and that's stinky! Just things growing well, stinky, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've tried the fish emulsion a couple of times, and and even the ones that say that they're deodorized, um, and they're really not. Really no. not to my that way is, of thinking. Yeah, I think it's harder hard to get around that. Do you grow in the winter time? Are you, do you overwinter I, things? I can do. We're in a, in a in a very mild climate, so depending on. On the on the winter, and if we've had any freezes, we usually have at least one. But um, you know, it's it's really easy to overwinter things like kale, spinach, carrots, um, those types of winter hardy things. I I have never really made a concerted effort to go out and really um, do some some serious winter gardening. Like I'll 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 heap on the mulch, but I've never built a cold frame or or any of those things. Although it's definitely on my to do list. 
I like what you said in your book um, about the winter garden is like a refrigerator. Food stays fresh mm-hmm. and ready to eat, but it doesn't put on any growth. But boy, yeah, golly, it sure, goes, mm-hmm. it sure goes gangbusters as soon as you have a mm-hmm. few warm days. Yeah, How early I'm do you start your it. stuff for the winter garden? Because a lot of people think winter gardening, well, you plant it in the fall, but you don't, do you, for the most exactly. part? Yeah, exactly. That's the key. So, you know, people hear winter gardening and they think, oh, gardening in the winter. But really, you're, you're doing that in late summer. Uh, sometimes, is, you know, some of the crops you want to start, you know, even in, in July. Because um, if you're planting in, in October, November, there's just no time for that plant to put on growth. So, you know, really the key is to plan that out and, and start getting things into the ground for, uh, in, in my climate anyway, mid-July or, or August so that it's put on enough growth so that it's like teenager-sized by uh, <laughs> the time um, the, by the time. Uh, Halloween rolls around and our and the daylight uh, just isn't enough to the the plant kind of just goes into stasis and holds in the garden like a refrigerator uh, in, until the days start to lengthen. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how much light we lose in the winter time. It's not only that we have short daylight hours. You know, people are are always grump about getting up in the dark and coming home from work in the dark. But also, the sun is at such a low angle; it really doesn't provide much energy for them, does it? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. That's why. Um, it, yeah, that's why you have to plant when there is still that uh, peak of sunlight in the summertime. Okay, tell people what um, how they can find you and how they how they can find your book. Sure, You've just got a couple so, of minutes left. Yeah, as as uh, as you mentioned, so I have a, a blog. It's at heavypetal.ca. That's .ca because I'm in Canada, and uh, also the .com wasn't available. <laughs> uh, my <laughs> book is called um, Small Space Vegetable Gardens. Uh, I also write for Edible Vancouver and Wine Country magazine, which is part of the Edible Communities um, group of magazines. Uh, it's, they're, they're wonderful magazines if you, if you haven't checked them out. Um, so I do their garden column as well. But definitely look for me online. I have uh, uh, my handle on Instagram and Twitter is at heavy underscore petal. And I'm also on Facebook at heavy petal gardening. That's a good thing to know. Now, you said it's heavy and then underscore pedal. That's right. Okay, good. I will try to get this up on the website for people so that they can, and if they have any gardening question, I will forward it on to you. Um, Thanks, Daryl. Thank you so much for being with us, and I should mention that the book is done by one of the best publishers for gardening books that I've ever come across, and that's Timber Press. They have mm-hmm. done a wonderful job. You've got great photos in here. Um, it looks fresh, and it's easy to read. Thank you so much for putting this book together. If you are gardening in a small space, get this book. It, you know, I started out gardening in a little strip, kind of a hell strip between the driveway and the neighbor's fence. It was about mm-hmm. three feet wide, and I made so many mistakes there. And you can, your book can help people not make those mistakes. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, I just want to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We'll be back talking more gardening next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com.